Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Value After Hours. I'm one of your hosts, Jake Taylor. And Happy New Year to everybody. Toby, what do you have for us today? I'm talking about the fact that the entire stock market is loaded to the gills on one side of the boat. Everybody's super bullish for the brand new decade. Bill, what do you got? We're going to talk about uh, three three bullet points from a 100-bullet-point thread that Liz, uh, the handle on Twitter is at LA Forever Hall, um, had tweeted out that were very thought-provoking. And I'm going to be going into some New Year's resolutions, uh, and then we're going to wrap everything up with a mailbag that uh, had some really good questions in it. So Big mailbag. Big mailbag for the New Year. Right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. All right, shall we kick it off with uh, New Year's resolutions? Have you given it some thought, Jake? I have. Um, my personal New Year's revolution uh, is actually springs from an article that came out from the BBC here recently, and it was uh, called How Busyness Leads to Bad Decisions. And really the idea of it is that we all, when we're under pressure, we start to kind of get tunnel vision and we work on little stuff that makes us feel good about making progress, but we're not seeing the bigger picture and working on the things that will really unlock the magic. Uh, and so Especially for me, I find that email is my arch nemesis when it comes to this. I get to feel so productive. They actually call it a uh, an attention slot machine because it's like, yeah, you go in and see if there's anything important you need to work on, and you're letting everyone else set your agenda for you. I spend way too much time in email. Uh, so their recommendation was to actually schedule time to to sort out your email and not have it just be open all the time. Uh, I think that's really smart. Uh, <laughs> So that's what I'm going to work on. Uh, they also had some other tips about uh, treating your life a little bit more like an art gallery and less like a pantry that you're just trying to stuff full of things. So, you know, you curate your I like that. an art gallery. Uh, you know, you everything's laid out for a reason. There's a flow to it. Uh, the same concept can be applied to your schedule and not letting, you know, every single thing be in there that, that uh, doesn't deserve to be there. I'd like to know if these people have kids. That's my one <laughs> yeah. my one pushback to them. Like, oh, that's nice when I wake up. Yeah. Come 5.30, all that changes. Paul Graham has a great post on the creator uh, time schedule versus someone who's reactive. So he says you just got to, because it takes a long time to get, you know, if you're writing, for example, you have to reread what you've written and yeah. then you have to start writing. So it might take an hour to prepare then you might get an hour or two of productivity before you need to take a break to do something else. So, so you need blocks of time rather than short periods. So he says you have a morning and an afternoon, and morning might be get all of the stuff that's hard to do done, or get the you know get the thing that you want to get done in the morning. Then the afternoon is all for meetings and busy work and email and everything else. And that's a good schedule. That's what I do. Yeah, Tim Daniel Harris had a good one on that. He he said like. Especially if you're a junior, it's sort of hard to do this. Um, but to try to articulate up front to your to the, your bosses or you know if it's our role or whatever, if it's a client, and just say in the in the email body, it's almost like a um, it's pre-written, and you say you know in order to do what I'm doing for you best. These are the blocks of times that I've scheduled to respond to you. I'll be working between these hours. If you really need me, you can call on my cell or something like that. Sounds like, better. Good luck with that one. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Had I done that at the bank, they'd have been like, oh, that's yeah. cool. Uh, call me right now. Yeah. And, and, and the law firm would have been the same. They're just like, yeah, that's my schedule. That's why you don't have one. You just right. do what I ask you to do. <laughs> that's yeah. right. When yeah. I ask you to do I don't it. Know if I don't know if you understand the roles here, sir. Uh, so, might be better in a book than reality, but there's probably something to borrow from it. Do you have yeah, a New Year's I think resolution? Paul Graham, sorry, uh, called it the the maker versus manager schedule. That's it. That's it. 
Yep. Do you, do you have a new, do you have New Year's resolutions, Bill? Dude, everything's perfect, man. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I I have gotten a lot this year out of creating content. I hope more of it's good than bad, but uh, I'd I'd like to continue that. I've gotten from from this podcast. Uh, you know, we we joke about the amount of followers, but I found them to be. Um, more than I thought they would be and, and really thoughtful and engaged. You know, people have written me about things that I've said and I'm appreciative of that. And it's made me look at things in a different way. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to prepare for this, continue doing a good job on this. And then I'll probably try to up the frequency that I'm writing on the blog and maybe decrease my Twitter frequency a little bit. Um, so that, that's most of it. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I got to put together a three and five year plan and stuff like that. But <laughs> right now it's just keep everyone alive and treat my, you know, family in a way that makes them not resent me on a couch somewhere someday. <laughs> yeah. You're in the survival period, you know, with that many under five. Yeah. Both you guys. Yeah. I, I, I have something similar, just like get more handsome get richer you know the, the usual no i don't have any specific yeah, resolutions <laughs> you get a better accent oh it's perfect sorry yeah i i i think that i think that it's a little trap waiting until the end of the year to get the resolutions it's all this pressure and then you mess it up and then you got to wait 12 months i think as soon as you have the thought you got to start putting it into practice and know that the first i mean i i think you know in relation to anything podcasting whatever i think that you just got if you want to do it you just got to start doing it and you know that the first the first dozen or so are just going to be write-offs and just get them done and get them out of the way and then start you know i love that uh there's i forget which movie it is but uh they they talk about the american businessmen they make these great leaps whereas the japanese businessmen actually it's it's uh it's rising sun and it could be the book michael Crichton talking about it he says that american businessmen make great leaps Japanese businessman Kaizen, like they just keep on improving all the time. And I think that that's a great approach, but I think you've got to do both. You've got to try and make the great leap. And then when you make the great leap, you've got to Kaizen as much as you can. Just like great, like it, tiny little improvements over and over and over again until you get something that's where you want it to be. Because if you wait to launch when it's Kaizen, you never get there. It never launches. There's a, a push and a pull to that, though. Like, I mean, you know, we've talked about what am I doing and where does it go? Right. And I would not have been ready certainly to run outside capital two years ago, probably 12 months ago. I don't, I mean, you know, I know that you're supposed to be like, Oh, I'm the best ever, but I, I don't know for certain that I'm ready today. Right. I think I'm a lot closer than I was, but I only want to pull that trigger once. Uh, I, that's not something that I want to prematurely bet and then get better. And I, and then the flip side of that is like, well, to your point, I, how are you, how do you ever know you're ready? Uh, I think I know that I'm a lot closer than I've ever known before. So well, here's a good question. What is the difference between running outside money and running your own PA? Other people's risk, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you've got people work really, really, I mean, hard for it. And it's one thing to lose. I think I could pick myself back up. I don't want to be responsible yet for other people needing to do that. And I don't think that I would do that to them, but I only want to make that bet once. And I'm sure everybody else only wants me to also. <laughs> How about you, Jake? Uh, the difference for me is the, the level of responsibility that I feel. Um, I mean, kind of like what Bill said, like, you know that you could work harder later if you had to or take a different job or, you know, it's 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 your fault if you lose it. But the I think maybe the reputation part for it, it would be really hard to to do poorly and wash out. Um, you would just feel so bad, like you're letting down all these people who trusted you. Like that's that's, a, that's an awful proposition. Yeah, in practical terms, I think what that means for me is that I si I would size everything much smaller, and I'd have a much more diversified portfolio in yeah. for outside capital. I would never size anything. You know, I've seen some guys who come out of the blocks really quickly, 
um, because they're very aggressive, in aggressive, you know, in in positions that are volatile and slide around a lot, and they put a lot of capital into them, and get a little bit lucky sometimes, get a great track record, and then you know never ever, and that's 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 luck, but then never diversify out, consolidate, never do anything like that, and just run into a brick wall, massive trap. Yeah, well, and it's so important to have the. I mean, you know, it, it's a. Uh... You have to be in the position to do it, but having the right partners is, I think, crucial to being successful, especially if you're running a concentrated book, because concentration works real well when it works. But when it doesn't work, you better have people that believe in what you're doing because, you know, then they'll just run from you. Right. Toby, you've done you've done different uh, modes of investment vehicles. Do you feel different levels of responsibility between them? So no, I don't. I, I feel I think it's the same. I think it's the same um, level of responsibility. I, I I've been looking for a way to that I'm looking for a structure that matches the way I manage my own. You know the way I manage money, the way I manage my own PA, and so I I, I have finally found that. But it's um, that's a process too. Well, I feel like too with your approach, like. You tell people exactly what you're going to do. You show them why it's worked in the past, why you expect it will work in the future, and you do it. And if it doesn't work out, well, shoot, what were you supposed to do? Like I did exactly what I, we all agreed was the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't stop it from not working out, though. Yeah, well, yeah but that, what I – I mean, that's what I love. You, though. Yeah, and what I love about your strategy and what I, what Jake and I have talked about, right, is it's like – you just kept peeling back the onion, got to your answer, and then you're like, this is it. This is my answer, right? And then to Jake's point, it's transparent. Uh, yeah. Nobody – no, that's – That's what I, that's what I wanted to – ask much more. Because the, the reason I did it that way is when I started out, you know, who am I? Why would anybody Why would anybody trust me at all? I have no expectation that anybody would. So I'm going to say, that, look, this is, this is the process that I go to to come up with the answer that I have. And this is what I'm going to – and my definition of a skillful investor is one who, um, who uh, executes on the program that they've told everybody else that they're going to do, that the food inside the can matches the wrapper on the outside of the can. That, to me, is a skillful investor. I told so it's my, not dog food, though, you're feeding them. <laughs> well, but the, you know, the idea – As long as you're willing to eat it. I didn't say it was necessary. Did I say it was dog food? It could have been like Chef Boy RD. It could have been something like that. Something really nice. <laughs> no, said, that makes sense. I said to my wife uh, after the after we had launched and it was everything was going, you know, basically according to plan. And I said, "This is really nice. Like the the strategy tracks value pretty well." And she said, "I didn't even know that it was a risk that that could that that could not happen." I was like, "Yeah, sorry, that that was also a risk." Well, the other thing that's tough too is like. I mean, how many people have managed through a real drawdown? What are those? Virtually none. What is this that you're talking about? Yeah, right. October to December, that's a joke. I mean, that's not real pain. I mean, that's temporary indigestion. I'm talking like pain. I think that's a good segue to actually, this was was my, this is what I was thinking about. My topic was um, the markets, I think, I saw somewhere it's a 29% year for the S&P 500. Is that right? Feels a little high, but it might 30. be December's been strong, man. So, and I think it was the best year since like 2013, which was also like a 30% year, like stunning, stunning returns. And those are compounded. There's not been much, there's been no drawdown. The 2019's coming off a higher level than 2013. Every central bank in the world is printing uh, I, I don't know anybody other than the guys who are perma bears who is even remotely bearish. And I, you know, I, I, my instincts are uh, always wrong. So I, I don't, I, I'm always slightly bearish, but that's probably, there's a little perma bear in me too. But I, I feel like, I feel, I feel, I just kind of get this feeling like we're going to run into a brick wall just because there's not every, every single person is on one side of the boat and all the arguments are so strong for being super bullish. Nobody's even thinking about, you know, what happens if it's not, if we go down a little bit. I did, uh, I was messing around with the Apple stocks uh, app, and I happened to notice that if you like kind of pinch your fingers together, it'll show you returns between two points in time. And um, I'd never done that before. Yeah, I didn't know to do that. 
Yeah. So then I, I was like, oh, I kind of looked at like one of the, I was just on the S&P 500's uh, map there. And um, if you go back to January of 2018 to today, we're only up 12% from there. Okay. So if you, you know, that's like a 6% return basically compounded over the last two years, which is about what the average you would expect on any given random year for equities. But boy, isn't that just like what you would also expect? Like the, the path to get there, you know, like crazy monster drawdown in, well, relatively speaking for this bull market uh, in late last year. And then just an, a year that comes out of nowhere that's up 30%. And that's how we get to 6% annualized for the last two years. Yeah. This is a, this is a tough game. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, you know, people are going to say what they say about him. But I, I think Ken Fisher is one of the best writers on this subject. I mean, he always talks about, uh, you know, average on paper is not how you get to average. Right. And I really like his way of picking what next year is going to do. It's sort of cheating, but he basically looks at what everybody says the year is going to do, and then he figures out the Opposite. bands that no one's picking, and he's like, that's the most probable outcome because that's the least likely to be priced in. The band that people aren't picking? Yeah, so, like, you know, you get up big – I don't know what the definition of big is, right? But like he basically looks at it like you're up big, you're up a little, you're down a little, or you're down big. Okay. Uh, and, you know, statistically speaking, you're either going to be down a little to up big more often than anything. So it, his argument is you want to be long unless you're going to be in the down big um, drawdown. So I guess when he might argue – that you should get nervous is when no one's looking at down big. That's what, what does he pay. say for? Does he has he given his twenty twenty projection? I can't read that man. Didn't you know what happened to him this last year? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't listen. I mean, I don't listen to anybody prognosticating about what's going to happen next year because no one knows. The only thing that those guys don't know is that they don't know, and so they know he's, less than I do. I, he, I think he's the best. I, I mean, you know, I don't know. People say what. I wouldn't talk like he talks at conferences, but that guy's freaking smart how he looks at things. I love the uh, story that his his dad, you know, he talks about uh, Phil Fisher in the intro to one of the uh, Common Stocks books, and he says he got asked at some conference where you could win. I think it could have been a TV or a color TV, what was going to happen the next day, I think. And I think his dad said, he, his dad was like up big. And I don't know what that meant for the day, but up big for the day. And then... Everybody else is like trying to come up with like a little move, like half a point or a point move, and he might have said two points or three points, one way or the other. And of course, that's what transpired. And he asked his dad, "How did you know that that was what was going to happen?" And he said, "I didn't know. All I knew was that I'd be the only person picking that number." That and so when it happened, it looked like skill. And if it didn't happen, then it, you know, it looked like uh, it, nobody would remember anyway. So maybe he learnt that lesson from his dad. He might. He might have. He's just picking what's, what everybody's not picking. And then if that happens, then he's a genius because he's out there by himself. I mean, that is the way to bet it, though, right? If you're – you kind of bet the don't come line and wait for – and no one else is. It's definitely the way to bet. It's yeah. definitely the way to bet. It's hard to see how people are wrong because you did just have a big spending bill. You do have an accommodative Fed. Valuations – like, I don't know where else to invest than to buy stocks. And I know that that is like, you know, what are you doing if you're doing it for nothing else? But I see stuff that I, I think is reasonable out there. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to be in the down big camp. But if it happens, I, I would be totally not shocked and i think people are gonna freak out and i i have this theory what's well, definitional right <laughs> if it's down big everybody's freaking out yeah well that's that's true that's true but i mean you know like I, man you can see some drawdowns in a lot of these names and there's a I, lot have... that's not rich right or there's a lot that is rich i i say i see things that i like i like certain setups i think this is not investment advice folks but like you know spirit airlines to me people aren't going to go nuts on spirit airlines it's a good business model 
They've done a lot over the long term. It's trading at a pretty reasonable price. I'd rather own that than bonds. Um, so, you know, there's there's some stuff out there that I see. That well, just was, came to mind. Let me ask you guys this. When was What was the last pitch that you heard that didn't have, like, 12 caveats added to it about, like, well, if this, you know, if this stays accommodative and X, Y, Z all need to break right, I just feel like every pitch now these days is, like, they realize – that there's this chain of events that kind of have to happen and break the right way for you for it to really, really work out from this price level. Doesn't that seem to represent more of the majority? I don't really yeah, look at outside pitches. So, so I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'm just sorry. Waiting. I don't mean to, to not be able to, to give you confirmation bias. It could be the fact that I spend time looking at airlines. Why am I here then? If not to get confirmation <laughs> bias, <laughs> That's a good question. I do wonder, like you're, yeah, I think you bring up some good points though. That, like, if there was ever going to be a exogenous push from the, uh, call it the powers that be, to keep the market high before an election, boy, wouldn't this be the team that would do it? Like, Trump, we've we've thought we thought we've seen a lot of rhetoric out of him so far. Imagine what he would be doing to, as the election draws near and the things he's going to be putting out to try to prop up the both just the perceptions of the market and the economy and trade deals. Doesn't like, he just ignore it if it's if it's down? It just doesn't yeah, exist if it's quiet, down. But yeah, I was cracking up when Robert Schiller was like, we've never had a motivational speaker that's a president before. It's like, dude, that's what half the presidents have they're all, been. They're all motivational just speakers. They've been an open market cheerleader and, you know, gone against the Fed or whatever. What about Reagan? Reagan was just good hair, good looking bloke. Yeah. I mean, you're going to tell me Obama wasn't a motivational speaker? Like, get out of here. That's the job. It's ridiculous, yeah. So um, it's the CEO job, right? We were just talking about that before. Was that before we were on camera? The CEO's job is to tell the story. Yeah, and you know, I think Trump understands reflexivity as it pertains to trying to get people out there and spending money. I mean, he gets that, and I I, I agree with Schiller that he puts more focus on that than others. Um, but he's not like the first motivational speaker that we've ever had. But I digress. But I do think that that sort of goes to your point, Toby, that Robert Schiller's on CNBC saying, you know, the cape's pretty high, but like also Trump's a really great motivational speaker, so we can go higher. Like it's it's interesting. Everybody's pretty bold up right now. Fear and greed is what at like 97 or something stupid like that. It but you know, this it time feels it very happen. weighted to one. It just the boat feels to me to be filled up on one side, and I feel pretty positive too. I'm not, I'm not immune. Like I feel good. I've, it's been a pretty good year. I, I, we're clearly like where there's momentum going into the new year. I don't know how it kind of uh, comes undone, I, and I don't see it coming undone. It's just, I just get nervous when every single argument, aside from the guys who you who you know are going to say something bearish, like everybody's bullish. I'm not like bulled up. I'm just not bearish. I don't have a view. Like, to be fair, like, I don't have a view. I just feel good. My view is that we probably become Japan, right? And how I'm wrong is like maybe the bluegrass capital view is correct, and we're in the middle of a, you know, um, revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, and and these deflationary uh, impacts take a lot of the inflation out for a while. And then once everybody has captured the market share and start to raise price, then inflation comes. I mean, you know, that's plausible. I don't know. So the, the tweet, the the tweet do storm do that? that you're going to discuss, Bill, I'm just going to jump the gun a little bit, but the tweet storm oh, okay. that you had, uh, Liz, uh, LA forever had one of the tweets was the, uh, because interest rates, because people are living longer and we're maybe at some tipping point where people can maybe live forever interest rates in that scenario go to like virtually zero which is why and we're because the market is a discounting machine markets a forward-looking beast we've already kind of started discounting to to zero how do you feel about that i'm didn't the u.s didn't the u.s just uh our our longevity like tick down for the first time in in 50 years or something here comes debbie downer i know come on man that might be the average though yeah, yeah, no, I'm, might I'm be... saying 
It's, it's like the first time in forever we actually like you're you're the next group didn't live as long as uh is not projected to live as long as the the cohort before it do the japanese live longer than everybody else they got to that zero interest bound before everybody else else did that's mm. right so maybe there's I something think, to I think, it Jake, i think maybe. your point i think that's drug related i could be wrong but uh, maybe um i jumped the gun a little bit do you want to introduce your topic bill no, let's just start talking about her. This take that she had, I, I mean, look, this woman is uh, obviously really intelligent. That particular take I thought is, like, way cooler to talk about than real. I don't care if humans start living for 200 years. They still can't delay gratification. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, what, you're going to tell me because I'm going to wait 200 years or to die that I'm going to not want to have something now? Like, get out of here. That's that's anti-human. It's not YOLO. It's not YOLO at all. I and mean, if we know anything, it's that YOLO is strong to quite strong these days. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about there's a there's a great – how many tweets in the tweet stream? 87 or something like that? 100. I think it's up to 100. 100. 100, yeah. Liz yeah. LA Forever is the Twitter handle. Uh, and the, the, uh, there, are some, there are several great tweets that you're going to mention, Bill. Yeah, the two that the two that I thought were really interesting, especially on the uh, on the back of our buy trade sell segment, was she said, uh, "Well, it's it's three. So company are like seventeen, eighteen, and twenty five. I think they are. Company narrative metagame management is one of the primary roles of a good CEO, and most do a poor job of it. Managing your narrative is a big aspect of capital allocation and can can create or destroy fortunes for your shareholders." Then she goes on, this is why Elon Musk may be one of the greatest CEOs of all time, especially if you think Tesla is worthless. Narrative management and capital allocation alters intrinsic value. And then she keeps going and she says, um, in highly reflexive businesses, short sellers are kind of like economic terrorists by reducing the range of possible intrinsic value outcomes. And I, I, you know, I think that's pretty interesting. Like, Look at what is Amazon if Bezos doesn't know how to deliver that message to the street from day one? What is Netflix if Reed Hastings doesn't know how to deliver his message and get that leash? Uh, What is Disney without Iger right now going through this transition? You know, there's a way to see Disney where they got in a bidding war from with Comcast. They overpaid for these assets to get Marvel because they're desperate to get growth. Disney Plus is like an offset to ESPN, which has massive headwinds, and Disney's failing. But, like, Iger's there, and he's got this sweet book, and he's Iger. And that stuff, I don't say that, like, that matters, right? And, and He's it's very likable, Iger. That's right. And, like, you know, he, he's a visionary, and, and he did... I'm not sounding proper, because the Pixar deal was super uh forward looking and he's done a lot of really good things and i'm not trying to be sort of denigrating to his record but but i do think that him being there totally changes the lens that people are willing to give to the company and and that matters a lot especially when you may need to go out and do an acquisition and stock is your currency or potential currency and buffett it's it's super hard to argue that him at Berkshire has not been a massive benefit to all the shareholders in addition to his allocation skills, who he is getting them through the, uh, the Solomon crisis and whatnot. I mean, all that stuff really matters. Do you think we know the term value investing if Buffett doesn't exist? Probably not. Do you think that Graham and everybody else is kind of, um, and that there are, there are practitioners who get it directly from Graham rather than, you know, like I think everybody from the last generation or two has got it from Buffett, right? Read Buffett's letters, then go backwards and find Graham. But there are a handful of guys who are Graham first who probably... Do you think that their records were good enough to kind of... Would it, would it have survived to this point? Yeah, I, I look, I think their records are good enough. I, I think Buffett to me is a unique combination of a guy that wanted it so, so bad, had the skill set 
and the and the brain to put it all together, condense it and package it in a sellable format. And something in him wants to be liked bad enough that he was willing to do it. So I think I think in order to mass market a concept, you need an idol. And he's a great delivery mechanism for the message. I would I think don't, those, don't uh, discount his 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 want of teaching also. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's fair. Sorry, buff dog. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, so I I guess there are other standalone records like Greenblatt, for instance, his record clearly deserves to be in the discussion. He wrote the books, but he's he doesn't have the same way to get it out to the masses. So he's just not as rich. My guess is that it would look like the current amount of followers of spinoffs and ARB. Yeah. And there's not a lot of those guys around. Not a lot. You know who does it well? I, I wanted to bring them up. Uh, that dude, Cadis, uh, whoever runs Cadis uh, uh, Cap on Twitter, they post really interesting ideas. And they've been long Bed Bath and & Beyond and Tesla in the past year. So, like, they have some it's real – yeah, It is range. Now, you know, maybe that's luck. I don't know. I don't know the person. I don't know what their track record is. But It's the Mariah Carey of investing. that's but you know that's uh you don't find many of them so that was a great discussion uh Corey hofstein threw this out to twitter (laughs) he said what would you pay or how would you even analyze what you'd pay for mariah carey's uh, all i want for christmas zero dollars i would i'll tell you what i would pay all the dollars if i could make sure i'd never hear the song again well here's the hit like because it's fintwit, the resp- like it gets into this. We got right into it, and the the analysis is kind of interesting. So uh, you can look at her Spotify plays. So she's the that song is the most played song on Spotify, and it comes out every year and it goes to number one. So her royalties from Spotify for all I want for Christmas is two million dollars a year, something like that. That ignores YouTube, radio, Pandora. I guess uh, Apple, iTunes sales potentially, any other kind of format. So I don't know what she's doing altogether, but it could be like five million dollars a year out of that thing. Now, is that a perpetuity that's growing? Is the growth rate higher than the discount? What that? What's that thing worth? Like that's worth a lot of money. There's still songs. We can still sing Bing Crosby's songs. They came out in '42. Yeah, there's a nostalgia element to to Christmas songs where I don't think they decay like other other things other ip you want to hear the ones from like what are all the movies that i like to watch during christmas time die hard die hard we're gonna watch it tonight because that's my kids are really into it uh national lampoons christmas vacation scrooged christmas story and elf is the only one that like it is this this like decade or even this century so otherwise it's all nostalgia right I tried to I'm, get into the I'm, Santa I'm Claus in the, at this point. I, you guys are all having the wrong conversation. The right conversation is how much would you pay to be Nick Cannon? <laughs> That's the right Good conversation. Point. Should we do the some? Uh, the song's worth a lot. Should we do some uh, mailbags? Yes, because I got I got quite a few good ones from the mailbag after uh, not having many last week. We've got after having zero last week. We've got. Three good ones. So this is a good one. Uh, I want to be a better investor. In the past two years, I've read lots Me of too. books on investing. Uh, Mobison discusses in the success equation the concept of luck and skill. How do you know whether you're improving your skill as an investor? What are the skill sets you should be trying to build? That's from Leslie Chan, CPA, CMA. It's a fantastic question. Really it's, good one. It's maybe like, it's probably the question to be asking yourself if you're in this game for the long haul. Because, you know, all the stuff that we talk about, you know, is it's a bullish or bearish chime, like all of that stuff will pass. And we'll have new setups and new opportunities and new problems to solve. But the meta game of it that she's talking about, um, that's the real game to be playing, I that's think. A, so, that's a man, Leslie Chen. Oh, my bad. Sorry, Leslie. Genders didn't didn't mean profile. to interrupt. Then sorry, keep going. Uh, 
Yeah. So for, I think that that's, that is the important question to be asking yourself is what can you be doing to, to get better? And I, for me, I think it really comes back to understanding yourself deeply. Um, because there's certain investment strategies that just make sense to you and are going to test your conviction to keep doing them all the way through when it doesn't work and when it does work and it has to fit your personality. And if it's going to fit your personality, you have to know what your personality is to begin with. So it's, it's really, it's a soul searching kind of a thing. Like it's, it's that last liberal art that, that Hagstrom talks about, um, that, it's why this game is so much fun, actually, and, and, and different for everybody and lots of different ways to win uh, and even more ways to lose. It's one of the few things that you can get better at as you get older. Like the ch- professional chess players, I think their computational skill tops out at 37, something like that. And then they can win for a few more years just because they've got a little bit of experience. But eventually the next guy coming through is just a better computer of positional play. And so they, they start falling off in their in their kind of mid forties. That's not true of investing because that you got you're not you're not timed for one thing, but you've got the um, you got the ability. It's all just experience, right? Just reps. The more reps you do, the better you get. Yeah, I mean, I for me, I think you got to look at why you're winning. So if you're winning off multiple expansion. Um, See you know, 2019. What's wrong yeah, with that? I mean, what's wrong with that? You know, is that is that something that's in your control, right? Or yeah, if you buy it cheap enough, it is. That's right. That's so is is that part of your strategy? And and that's what I I think aligning what your strategy is with why you're winning and did I underwrite that? That's the important thing, right? If you're just sort of directionally that I have found writing to be super important for this because it allows me to go back and say, this is why I bought something. I have stuff in my portfolio now that's like, I mean, you know, I've had it for years. I I wasn't writing at the time. I'm happy with the position, but like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was right, I guess, but I don't know that I was right. Like I know that I was right for some of my current positions or wrong for that matter. Yeah, I agree. Um, writing the idea down, writing the thesis down is important. Yeah, because I mean, even ABM Bev, like, God, I hate owning that freaking thing. But I look back and I mean, it's doing better than I underwrote. And, you know, I didn't expect all the financial engineering this year and the volatility in it and having to be pestered about why I bet on 3G and what an idiot I am and why don't I own Heineken. Like that stuff has gotten to my psyche, but the written thesis and the presentation that I gave on it sort of is, you know, my version of a true north. Um, so, you know, we'll see if I'm wrong uh, in due time. But that's that would be my best advice to you is write write your stuff down and, you know, see what happens from there. So I've got another one. Uh, this is a this is a question that uh, is about asset allocation. What's a sensible allocation of assets given how inflated all assets appear to be now? Read a bit of Meb Faber, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. That's uh, Cameron from Melbourne. And we are so international. This is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> also levered and long because YOLO. Um, no, I, uh, the way I, I run you know, my family is I have a certain amount of cash set aside that I think that we'd need um, for an ex- living for, you know, expenses. A, yeah, for a period of time that we're comfortable with. Um, I have a CFA and a JD. If I can't get some job, I think I'm probably doing something seriously wrong. Um, my wife has years of attorney experience. I'd like to think she can go back to work. So it's just a personal thing. And then everything in addition to that, I, I have equities because I just don't fundamentally believe in credit right now. That's a personal bias, but I think it's one that it's right. And I'm, I'm willing to die on the hill. This but the, this the cash is... allocation is fairly large. Like I'm not – and again, talk to a financial Six months? Advisor. Six months of no, living expenses longer? I have like four and a half years, man. Yeah, that's, that's long enough. Already. I need a cushion. What's what's uh Jake? This is kind of more your wheelhouse, isn't it? What's what do you what do you think in in? Uh, I don't have a wheelhouse, but um, 
for me, I mean, this gets back to to Manier's, you know, that repression paper that we talked about. Like, if you believe X, then you should probably be doing A. If you believe Y, you should probably be doing B. And they're like diametrically opposed and could both be right under different right. scenarios of the world that we don't really know what it's going to look like. Um, so X and Y being rates lower for longer um, or, you know, Y being that like we get reversion to the mean. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really tough. There's it there's it does feel like there really is nowhere to hide. I'm thankful that we don't have also ripping inflation that is basically like increasing the ante of holding cash at this point. Um yeah, depending on where you look. Like I, I saw some I've seen some other like computations of of inflation that aren't CPI and it's like it go, it looks at different cities in the US and like just at the four hundred things that people buy the most, basically. And it was like it's been running at like ten percent. Um, so maybe it is a little bit higher and the, that does hurt a little bit more than to hold cash, but is that a shadow stats stat or is it something? No, it was that? this other index, um, a zero hedge index. No, the zero hedge index. I wasn't looking at that either. You don't think I, CPI I, understates the actual inflation that's going on? There's no way it doesn't. There's no yeah, way okay. because everything that you want costs a shit ton more. They also shrink, like, they shrink everything down on you. Yeah, I dude. Know. Like, great. So my TV went down in cost. I could care less, right? Like everything I want. That's costs a hedonic way, adjustment. Way. A lot of hedonic adjustments. Ticket, right? And like, they're gonna tell me that that's not inflation because it's some discretionary item. It's what everybody wants to do. Like anything that people want to do costs a ton more. Yeah. So I, I think the argument is that um, for me, I, I'm trying to be patient and. Ho- and have I have more much more cash than would have ever been probably considered prudent over the last you know call it five years. So I'm I'm probably when I say that it's not a wheelhouse like I really meant it like this is I have been wrong for long enough to where it's like I don't I have zero confidence in my own ability to predict whether which way is the direction of you know Monier's kind of gambit. So yeah. how do you reconcile your cash position? position with uh like how berkshire runs their stuff or what buffett would probably tell you to do uh well i I do keep an eye on that and i think i'm I'm actually pretty close to the allocations of of what berkshire's balance sheet looks like especially if you consider the cash as you know zero return bond you know paper um it's it's not that different. Like granted, like they have a lot of more bonds because of regulatory reasons, but but I don't think I look that much different than Berkshire at this point. Now, whether he would say you're too small to not look different than Berkshire, that's a different argument, and he may be right. Um, like you're not working hard enough then to find. But then my counter to that would be like I thought I'm looking for one for hurdles. Like if I have to work that hard for it, then like what are we doing here? Uh, these are all seven footers that you're telling me I need to find and jump over. So can you, can you do a Frosby flop? The Frosby yeah. flop. I feel like I have to at this for a lot of these things. So I, um, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty close to what Berkshire looks like at this point, though, and I do keep track of it and as a percentage of like how much cash do they have as a percentage of total book value, and I'm not far off from it. If that gives you an idea of the underperformance. <laughs> You got a hundred billion dollars in cash. It's a it's percentage. Not, it's not fair to to like judge your portfolio based on what would it be if it was a hundred percent S and P, right? That's uh, it's, that is a very spurious argument for sure. Yeah, and it's like it way overstates. I, I how feel like much I feel like it might be a good bit now, have. though. Next decade, that's a pretty good bit. I'll take it. I would absolutely make the the Buffett protege partners bet today. I think oh, Ted Citus is just so happy. Ted, please be listening. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think Ted wins the next decade. He just happened to get he got the wrong decade, and I think Buffett knew that actually going into it. The bet was struck in two thousand and nine. When yeah, was the bet struck? Maybe seven, maybe seven. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere around there. I almost want to say the beginning of eight, but I might be wrong. 
Toby, what do you think on cash? Oh, it's hard. Yeah, you need some you need some living expenses set aside. Uh, but where you allocate after that is the hard thing, right? Do you, there's nothing that's really good. I'm an equity guy. I only want to hold equities because it's the only thing that I feel like I understand or I have a little bit of an edge. It's like a guy who, you know, if you're a professional uh, Hold'em player, don't sit down for PLO, but don't sit down at the blackjack table. Like, you got to do what you know how to do. And for me, it's one thing. I know, I know equities. And so I can get, I think that I don't look at equities and think, well, this equity is going to give me 7%. I look at the equity like, well, it's got some cash. It's got some assets. Like, I, I get a feeling for each one of them. And so I want to invest on that basis. So I know. Do you that actually that... specifically look through to the? Do you kind of think like my percentage ownership of this company? No. Therefore, no, makes my balance sheet look like this. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not bringing. I'm not bringing their assets onto my balance sheet. Okay. No, no. I I, but I just look at each. I'm looking at each one as its own risk-adjusted bet. That's why I'm thinking about it. And so I'm just making sure. You know, they've got a little. They've got excess cash. They've got some assets. They've got some cash flow. I feel like that's and I, and if and if the uh, management has some evidence of buying back stock, I feel like if the market really gets beaten up, use the free cash flow to buy back some more stock. We're probably going to be going ahead, even though on paper we're probably down. With as an investor, I'm going ahead through a period like that. I mean, the, you know, the tough thing on something like this is, like, we're podcasting. We live this stuff, right? Like, if it's a if it's a listener. I don't know how much you live this stuff. And I would just really encourage people to uh, however much risk tolerance you think you have back off of that number a little bit because there's nothing worse. The bad decision was sort of made earlier uh, and there's nothing to do now. So now's the time to think about it at the top of the market. Now's the time to think about it. So like, if you're you down know, 50% sort of... next year, how are you going to feel? Can you survive after that? And maybe it doesn't recover. Maybe it does a Japanese-style swan dive and it's 25 years away. That's what you've got to think about. It doesn't necessarily look like 2009 when it bounces like a golf ball off a concrete path. Yeah. And if, if you underperform <laughs> a little shit. bit, who gives a shit? Like, I mean, if what are you, what are you really trying to compound for? Like, it's not – you're not Glory. in some race against Buffett. Yeah, well, then – then you're probably going to get your face ripped off at some point, right? <laughs> so get ready for the punch. All right, I got yep. another question. This is a this is a two-parter, so buckle up. Given the best investors are wrong even one third of the time, I think that's I think that's wildly Generous. bullish. I think the best investors <laughs> are wrong one half of the time. Should we just invest based on a multiple alone, or can we do using do better using a checklist and trying to understand the business dynamics? Yeah, let me be clear. You can definitely do better trying to understand. Using a checklist and understanding the business dynamics, I would never just use the multiple align. And I don't, my screeners don't do that. I don't do that. But off to you guys. I think it's, uh, I think there are a couple smart ways of doing it. Like it's a, it's a sliding scale of concentration for me. How much do I have to really understand about the business to how much would I be willing to concentrate in it? I think if you'd use a more of kind of like a Walter Schloss approach where it's, he probably had a hundred stocks at any given time and they were, it was all of them were just, let's just say low, some multiple, whether it's PD book, book yeah. something. Yeah. You think he was more um, than book? I think, yeah. I think I, if I recall correctly, like they looked at some other stuff than just that. Um, he was a tiny bit more sophisticated, I think, than people give him credit for. Um, and if you're today's Walter Schloss, then, then kudos to you, <laughs> as Bill likes to say. He is today's Walter Schloss. So, um, so that's kind of one end of the spectrum of things that I, I think are intelligent to do. You know, you're just very diversified. You're owning a basket. And really what you're kind of doing is approximating the value studies that have done so well. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you concentrate. You know everything about the business. You know the sock size of the, uh, you know, the CEO. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm in jest a little bit there, but... Um, I, I do often wonder, and maybe this kind of will goes into it a little bit more, but I sometimes wonder when I'm doing really deep due diligence on a company, am I adding to like the relevant knowledge at a slower clip than I'm adding to my my confidence in the idea? Right. And am I is there's got to be some crossover point where I'm not really learning anything that's that useful for understanding the business and the returns, but I am adding to my confidence that like I know I know everything about this. 
And that's I think is actually you can find yourself in a in a problematic place. I was just listening to an Adam Robinson, Tim Ferriss podcast about this exact issue where horse handicappers do better or as well with like three pieces of information as they do with 40. But their bet size goes way up with 40. So, you know, I would um, I don't don't know. um, I I think you got to figure out what you can stick with. I think that if you're going to be a discretionary investor, you got to do enough of your own research that when the market tells you that you're wrong, you're not looking at the stock price to figure out if you're wrong. Because in my opinion, that's the best way to lose money out there. Uh, Whatever that is for you, I have no idea, right? I know for me, it really depends on the idea. I mean, the airlines took me like seven months to get my head around. I've been stuck on this freaking restoration hardware thing forever. I'm probably not even going to buy it, and I'm still doing it. Um, And then there's been other things that I bought literally in a day. um, But it's been because it's been in my – it's been something I've sort of followed, and then one day it just clicked. Um, So it's it's not really just a day. But um, I don't know, just – the fact is you got to be able to stay, staying power in my opinion. You own a business. So you can't get scared by the price of the business and sell the business. I I put that study into quantitative value, the horse racing study. And there's another interesting one as well, where I think it might have been on betting on college football games. So they asked a whole lot of kids, how closely do you follow college football games? And they, they found the ones who did follow it. Then they got, you know, what data points do you look at to determine who's going to win? And they collected all those data points. Then they randomized them. So... Everybody eventually got the same data about each, you know, the game, the matchup, but the order in which they were given the information varied. And what they all tended to do was they anchored on the first bit of information that they got, and then they didn't update Mm -hmm. as they went along. And then there's that other one, the horse racing one, where just the more information you get, you don't get more accurate, you just get more confident. So, So I think it's really interesting when I read the snowball, the thing that really stood out to me is the way Buffett analyzes a company, basically what he's doing. He's looking for a reason not to invest. He's just combing through. And the, what, I've, what I've heard is he you know, doesn't like the CEO, so that's gone. Doesn't like whatever, some arrangement gone. Doesn't like something gone. Like that's what he, he's trying to find a way to reject. And that's kind of interesting because I think that um, you probably only need th- three bits of information. Maybe, maybe you need six to work out whether you want to be long. And then you should have a list. And I know that Monish Pabrai does this as well. He's got a list. I think there might be 80 questions on it. And he goes through the 80 questions trying to cut something out. I think that's an interesting way of investing. I think that's a smart way of investing. Yeah, Munger's actually talked about Buffett's disqualifying checklist. What's, what's on it? Uh, it's uh, doesn't like the CEO, too much tail risk, and uh, I think profit margins. And those three things, like if any of those are he decides he doesn't like it, there's no balancing out anything else that he could look at. He just moves on. He's done. And so there's no, you know, like, oh, well, but I really like this other part. And now you start it starts getting complicated in your head of, you know, weighing the pros and cons. He has like just deal breakers and those he just abandons ship right away doesn't even go on anything else so i i think that's a pretty interesting thing of putting together your own disqualifying checklist that it probably keep you out of talking yourself into some the occasional bad idea part of the reason that i invest the way i do which is you know more systematically than than you guys do but it's because uh there's a there's a great book i think it's called uh winning the losers game and it's about you know tennis at a professional level when you see it on television those guys are trying to hit winners right you can't win if you can't hit a winner because they don't make many errors. But at an amateur level, you win by not making errors. Just get the ball back over. Let the, them make the mistake. Exactly right. You just keep yeah. on making the other... Let the other guy make the mistakes. And I think investing, like if you can just remove the unforced errors from your game, you're, you're, you're right up there in elite company. You don't have yeah. to have a brilliant insight. You just have to not vaporize part of the portfolio. I think about investing like I think about fantasy football a lot. So, uh, like you can blow your entire fantasy football year if you get a high draft pick wrong, you're not going to win it. 
but you, you can, can definitely it. blow it. And then you can win if some of the later round picks really sort of develop into something that you didn't see. So especially with my bigger positions, I try not to lose. Uh, more with, certain rather than yeah, more upside. Yeah. Low variance. Right. And then outcomes. I have, I mean, I don't run like, I have a tail of some positions that I hope can sort of surprise me to the upside. Sleepers. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's where a lot of my portfolio churn is found too. Um, you know, cause maybe the, uh, guy had to get sent down. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you later. Go work on yourself. <laughs> so I don't know, but that's my theory. I think it's a good question though. I mean, what's, and it kind of goes back to the, the previous question about understanding yourself, like, and all these questions tie together in, you know, if you're down, do you have the conviction to buy more or do you get spooked out of it? Uh, that doesn't, what is it that you're going to rest intellectually on the, the bet that you're making? Like, is it that you trust that the studies will work out, you know, and that, or is it that you trust that your, your understanding of the business is you, there's something unique about what you understand. So it, you have to have something in that realm. Otherwise I think you lose this game, but that something can be a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. Yeah, well, I think I think that the hardest thing I was just talking to somebody about this this weekend. The hardest thing about public market investing is every single day somebody's telling you that you're either right or wrong, and you have to not care what that person says. When and you say somebody, do you mean you mean somebody on Twitter or do you mean the market? Yeah. <laughs> well, I aren't mean, those the same thing? Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> I, it depends, right? How public you are with what you're doing or whatever, but the market at a minimum. You can always check, and if you're getting your your satisfaction about, you know, whether my portfolio is up or down, uh, that's a very hard game to uh, continue to, to win at. Do, I you, think. do you check it every day? Do you check it all day yeah. every day? Yeah, I check every day. I don't I don't check all day at all. I like to tell myself I just see if something big is happening in the portfolio, but I like to. You know. like the dopamine hit? Yeah, I do. But like honestly, part of me knows that about myself. Uh, so I I think I'm relatively good at managing that. Somebody listening is probably like, oh, that guy's an amateur and he's gonna <laughs> screw himself doing that. Well, sorry, you do you, man or lady. <laughs> so we skipped. Uh, what do we think about the Geico news? Mm. Let's do that. What do right? we think Todd, about the Geico Todd's news? Taking over it. So he's, uh, he's, he's managing $14 billion. He's now the CEO of Geico, and he's the liaison to the J.P. Morgan, Amazon, Berkshire healthcare initiative. And this dude's wearing a lot of hats right now. Yeah, he is. The, which the which first... Todd is it? <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, it's Todd, Todd Combs. Ted. Yeah, so Todd Combs and Ted Weschler, right? So uh, – uh... Are, they, so, are those the same name in Australia or something? Because like every time, you yeah, you said it twice. I didn't know. I, didn't, I, I, I don't honestly. I don't watch Berkshire that closely. It's just not that relevant to me. But <laughs> Todd and Ted. Sorry. Yeah, that's. It's fine. <laughs> my, my bad. Apologies. It's Is it good. our accents? Is that the problem? You can't recognize <laughs> the <laughs> culturally insensitive. I think it's it's hard to figure out what it all means. I understand why he would still run the fourteen billion. It's hard to transition portfolios, and if he doesn't have a lot of churn, you know, I would I would do the same thing. I don't really know what it involves to run Geico. It seems to me like that's a really well-oiled machine. Um, you have a Jeet above you too, still to. He's he's in charge of all the insurance companies, so this, I, there's there's still training wheels there. Yeah, I I mean, man, I don't know. I don't even want to say this out loud, but I I wonder how a Jeet's health is, uh, and whether or not it's time to start getting somebody under a Jeet that how old is he? Take that over. Uh, I don't know how old he is, but and I you know I is don't know well? what I'm talking. I don't know what I'm talking about here, but when he stood up and he was at the meeting, I mean, he was shaking a lot. And I, I just don't – they don't put those guys up, so I don't even know the questions to ask, right? And none of that's disclosed, and it shouldn't be he deserves privacy, but it's just one of the thoughts that I had is, like, maybe this is part of getting Berkshire ready. And, uh, Could have been nervous. 
I don't know. Yeah, could have been. It didn't look it. It looked health-related. Um, but I, I figured, okay, well, this clears sort of the way for Ted to take over the public investing, and, you know, all systems go. Mm. So does that change the handicapping on uh, who's the front runner for operations uh, replacement? I don't think so, right? Because I, I always still think able and like Ops Co, G. Insurance Co, and then uh, Float Co. <laughs> so I I think Ted is Float Co if he wants it. So we we uh, have wrung all of the juice out of this week's episode. Should we uh, yeah. declare it? Declare the meeting no. closed. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're going to take a one-week break, and uh, then we'll be back uh, the f- second week of January. Send us your questions, please. Questions to Jake, uh, insults to Bill, and compliments to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah, it does. Cheers. Cheers.